Greetings this morning to each of you in the name of Jesus. I suppose you feel a little bit like me, a little overwhelmed by all that we've heard. And we've ascended, ascended the hill again this morning, as Josh shared with us, to, to seek God, and to seek His ways, and to learn more of Him. I was thinking about a verse this morning in Joshua 3, 4. I think this fits all of us. This is kind of where we're all at this morning. I'm just going to break into the verse. It says that ye may know the way by which ye must go, for you have not passed this way before. I think that's very true for every one of us. Well, none of us have passed this way before. We don't know what's on the morrow. Many of you are young parents. Some of you aren't parents yet. The way is before us. And it's our desire this morning is we can seek God's way for our homes and for our families. God laid another message on my heart than what I brought. And uh, so I just trust that you'll pray for us this morning and that this will be God's message and that He will receive the glory from it and that you'll be encouraged as parents and fathers and mothers and whatever stage we are, even grandparents today. want to look into God's Word and maybe uh, deal with those stones again that Luke talked about last night. It seemed like his message was kind of a stirring and for me and I've been thinking about something different anyway. <clears throat> but I'd like us to think about what we've came here for. We've come here to strengthen the family. I really appreciate the title, Homes on Purpose. Uh, we call it Intentional Godly Home. It's the same thing. It's, it's being intentional. And we've come this weekend. A lot of our teaching has resolved, revolved around marriages and family and parenting and all those things. I was thinking about a verse in Malachi that speaks about you know, there's lots of purposes of marriage, and we talked about them yesterday. Brother Choi covered all those. I noticed that on the screen, some, one of the, the purposes that was flashed up was actually taken from Malachi. It was Malachi 2, um, and he says this there. I want to read the verse there. It speaks about, really, a purpose, the main, maybe one of the main purposes of our families. He said this, he says, and, and did not he make one, he's speaking about husband and wife, why did he bring them together? Why did he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. That's what God's after this morning, is a godly seed. And that's going to take godly marriages and of course godly families too. So, I think this is the kind of the overshadowing goal and purpose of our message this morning is seeking the godly seed. As we've heard these messages, I guess now it's time for the rubber to hit the road, we might say, as we go home. I'd like to talk about passing on the baton. Passing on the baton. Coming here inspires us. And I was thinking about one of the opening messages that Luke shared, you know, that unless we continue to drink from that living water, 
Take that living water in, spend time in the soul room. That water can't spill out into our families and into our homes. And I want to remind us of that again, that that's really kind of the, the central focus is to continually drink from that living water, spending time in that soul room. And that has blessed me uh, as I've come here this morning to prepare, even this morning, spending time in my soul room. It's so easy just to jump into the, to the roll room of, of a messenger, bringing a message this morning. But thank God for the soul room that we've been able to enjoy this morning. I'd like to begin asking us some questions. If eternity is at stake, if the real enemy is the love of the world, if Satan is extremely divisive and clever, if his number one strategy or goal is to capture and to deceive the heart of your children, if the gate to eternal life is really narrow and rugged, if heaven is tremendously glorious and hell is excruciatingly tormenting, if you are the one who will most likely influence their eternal destiny, the question is how intentional should you be in passing the baton to the next generation? That's sobering. To think that the eternal destiny, you are the ones as parents that are molding and shaping them. You have the greatest influence, the greatest impact on their lives. We don't know where we are on God's time clock. We don't know if, if today's our last day, the Lord will come again today. We don't know if it'll be 100 years. We don't know. But we do know that we see some definite in time signs that we need to be well aware of. The question I ask is, will we, will our children be able to navigate through all the seductive deceptions that Satan puts before us? That's a question we trust that we can as we continue to drink from God's Word. So the goal of this message, again, is just to give you some tools to help you pass on the baton to the next generation. I'll share some tools with you, things I wish I had learned when I was your ages, when my family was at your stage in life. A lot of the lessons, unfortunately, we learned come later in life, maybe sometimes a little bit too late. But it's our desire this morning as we speak today that there's no hoof left behind. What a wonderful exhortation that we had the other night about no hoof left behind. Think about that question. You know, I'll just talk briefly about our own fraternity. If you look at New Conference, New Conference has dwindled in growth since it began to grow, since it began in 2009. I wondered sometimes, is that alarming to anyone? Maybe it's dropped maybe about 100 members since we began. But you think about the potential, the baptisms, and you think about the potential, the opportunity that has been here. And why aren't we growing? Why are we only keeping nationally maybe half of our children? 
Which half of your children do you want to walk a different direction? The sobering question, I don't know. I have all the answers for that. But the reality is that we have a very narrow window of opportunity. Some of you holding little infants, little children in your laps. And I think I wasn't aware of this, but the opportunity, the primary area or time of influence, they say, is between 4 and 14. It's about a 10-year window. Primary opportunity, prime opportunity that you have to influence your children. That's not saying some can't be done before and some can't be done later, but that's the primary influence. That's the time that these children are like sponges. They also say a child's moral and spiritual compass is largely set by age nine. How many of your children are already nine or older? And to think about that spiritual compass, that moral compass is primarily set by age nine. His fundamental views on truth, justice, morality, integrity, and ethics are formed very early, much earlier than I think what we realize. So this is the time to be sowing seeds and discipling our children. Greek philosopher Aristotle said once, he said, give me a child until he's seven and I will show you the man. I think what he's saying is if I can influence a man, a boy, until he's seven years old, I can show you what that man will be like. You think about the power of intentional influence. It's tremendous power that you have in your hands. Well, let's go back a little bit to, to those stones in the river back in Joshua where we were last night a little bit. Just going to give you a little bit of, uh, Luke went through some of the story there. I'm just going to recapture just a little bit here in my own words. So after Israel had wandered these 40 years, they come to the bank of the Jordan River. And they're standing there. And, and, the, and the souls, as the souls of these 12 priests touch the water's edge, all of a sudden the waters part into a heap and there's a dry path going right straight across the Jordan. And the priest that carried the ark stood in the middle of the river while all the people passed over. You get this picture of these priests standing there uh, with the ark there in the middle of the river. And all the people are passing past them. I believe it isn't until all the people were gone it says that after they had crossed the river, God commanded that they take 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan where the priest stood and carry them to the place where they were going to camp that night. I'm going to break in here, verse, <clears throat> move on to verse 21. Well, let me finish that just for a moment. <clears throat> they took those stones to Gilgal. And there they were told to make a monument there in Gilgal. A memorial. And the verse 21, it says this. You can follow along if you'd like. Joshua 4, 21. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye these stones? Now picture these stones in this heap in Gilgal. In those days, they didn't have signs. In our day, we would have had a sign posted. 
This is a memorial of when we crossed the Jordan River. They didn't have signs. They just had stones. They were memorials. They didn't have to worry about them deteriorating. They would be there. They'd last there indefinitely. And so children would come along and they'd see these stones and they would say, what's these stones for? Then you shall tell, let your children know, saying, will Israel come over this Jordan on dry land? This was a miracle. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord, that you might fear the Lord your God forever. So this was a memorial, a memorial for them to remember the mighty deliverance of God. You see, God intended for fathers to continually take this opportunity and mothers to remind their children of the deliverance of God. This is something that is very, very important for us to do as parents. And I think that sometimes it's easy for us to forget, even sharing with our children, our testimony of how God delivered us, how God delivered me from that barren desert, from that cesspool that I was in. We need to remind our children of where we were not the details, but how God has delivered us through the cross and through the blood of Jesus. So there's the memorial there, and, and then you can flip over uh, a couple more pages and to Judges and just see how, how that worked out. We read there a little bit in Joshua. So how well did they do in passing on the baton? I'm going to read in Judges 2. Follow along if you'd like. A few verses there. <clears throat> beginning at verse 1. I'm just going to begin there at the beginning of the chapter. And the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said... I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. But they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it shall come to pass, when the angel of the Lord spake these words, unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. Just think of the response as they heard this proclamation of, of what, what was happening, what was going to happen. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake, these were, I read that, and they all called on the name of, they called that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works 
that the Lord that he had did for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in, the, in Timnatheres, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaash. I'm going to stop there. This is a very sad account of history. God faithfully delivered them through the wilderness. And He gave them the promised land, gave them the opportunity to move into the promised land. And you can see what happened. This first generation saw firsthand what had happened. They were witnesses of God's mighty power and mighty deliverance. They saw the Jordan parted. They saw at least the Jordan. They didn't see the Red Sea because this was a new generation coming in. Uh, but they saw the Jordan. They saw the mighty hand of God. Of course, some of them would have been very young as they wandered through the wilderness. Some of them were now perhaps in their 40s. But it's a sad account because the first generation saw God's mighty deliverance and what happened. He saw, they saw that they had turned their backs on God as the spies went out into the land. And they knew that the, that the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years was a direct result of disobedience to God. And it says there in verse 7 that they served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the elders that outlived him. So the Bible says that there's two generations that were faithfully serving the Lord. And then you get to verse 10 and it says, And also all that generation that were gathered unto their fathers, there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works that he had done for Israel. The question I'd like to ask us this morning is why didn't the next generation know the works of the Lord? What happened? Isn't that a sad commentary? After they saw all the mighty things that uh, God had, had, had displayed before them, it says they forgot the mighty works which God had done for Israel. This is where the baton is dropped. You see that the risk of the baton being dropped is always in the transfer from one to the other. That's when it's dropped. So let's think a little bit about how can we effectively and safely pass on the baton of faith to the next generation. I think about my days in school. <clears throat> we went to public school. Maybe some of you did this in your private schools. But I can remember the relay races. And I can remember that the teacher would all have us line up into two teams and would be lined up there. And each team would have a baton and you had to run down to the in and down maybe around a pole and run back and hand it to the next person. But when is the baton often dropped? As you're running that race, that little relay race, and you come back, it's not in the running. It's not in the running. You're hanging on to that thing with all you can, but it's in the passing. It's the handing it to the next runner. And you see, this is the challenge that we have as parents, is handing that baton off to the next generation. Thinking still about no hoof left behind. <clears throat> I work with parents, oftentimes that are struggling with their families. 
And I know what it's like to struggle. And I have some of the same struggles that they've had. But you know what the most common problem is? You're probably, if I was to have you guess, I'm sure you would guess it. The most common problem is busyness. Busyness. That seems like that's always what's getting in the way of passing the baton off to the next generation and and teaching children the biblical way, biblical values. So, but for centuries, families have been busy. I'm not sure that it's the busyness itself that's at fault. You know, you think about our forefathers. You know, I suppose that my grandfather, probably at least my great-grandfather, probably worked from sunup to sundown. You know, they were busy. So I'm not sure that busyness was always the problem. But I think it is for us today. Thinking about how centuries, for centuries, that, that you know, we have it so much easier today in a lot of sense. I mean, we can work whatever, eight hours a day. A lot of us could make a living on eight hours a day. And many of them had to spend 12 hours or 14 hours a day to make a living. So I think that there's more to it than just busyness. Um, But I think that there's a difference. Back in generations previously, if you go back about 150 years, maybe 120 years, maybe not quite so far, before the Industrial Revolution, fathers worked with their families. This was the... this. Children worked with their fathers. This was, they worked together as a family. Maybe they were farmers, or maybe they worked in a, the cobbler shop, or maybe they made wagon wheels, or, or whatever they did, they worked together. And the idea was the values that was being passed on to the next generation all during the day, like we heard last night in the Deuteronomy uh, 6. But it's different today. Us fathers are gone. I was like you, gone most of the day. A lot of fathers get up. They don't even see their children until supper time. And then you've got that little narrow window to come to condense whatever teaching you're going to get uh, conveyed to them. That's in respect to fathers. Mothers, you have that opportunity all day long. And you can be sowing those seeds, that Deuteronomy uh, Sixth passage about teaching children uh, in the morning, in the afternoon, when you sit down, when you get up all during the day, you've got that opportunity to be sowing those seeds, planting seeds so that the baton can be passed on safely. But I want to warn us. Luke gave us a very good message last night about family worship. But there is a danger here. And the danger is, is we can begin to depend on that little 15-minute window or 20-minute window, whatever we have for family devotions, and think that that's the transfer of our values is going to happen in that little narrow window of time. And I think that's, that's a danger. I think that family devotions are very necessary, like we heard. I believe that. But we don't want to depend on that to be the only time that it's transferred. Again, it's to be done all during the day. That's what the Bible says. As you go through the day, 
I'll just share quickly how I've enjoyed doing this, even with my grandsons now. It's when they're writing with me, talking to them, telling them Bible stories, just finding opportunities to, to share the Word of God in daily life, daily experience. I want to go through some about four different principles that can help us successfully pass on the baton. One, we must make discipling our children our priority. Number two, we must live in sincerity. Number three, we must have deep convictions. And number four, we're leaving a legacy. What legacy will we leave? I have to go quickly. Let's think first of all about we must make discipling our children a priority. We must realize that the choices we make now will echo throughout all eternity. Every choice, there's no insignificant choices in the lives of our family and our children. Right now, we seem to be driven by time and schedules. We can't get away from that. But let's think about what will happen to our children in 10 to 20 years. We were, someone suggested that over our time here, think of the 30-year picture. Try to picture those little children in that 30-year picture. Where will they be? Let's think about how are we discipling them. I'm speaking about this because this is an area I was weak in. Webster's define a disciple as a pupil or a follower of any teacher or school. A true disciple is not just a student or a learner, but a follower. A follower, one who applies the truth that he has learned. That's what a true disciple is. The true Christian disciple will ask the question, and we want to teach our children to ask this question, what would Jesus do? What does the Bible say? That's the, the, the quest of a disciple, is continually learning that. What would Jesus do? What would He say? What does the Bible say? What does it teach? I think about, as I think about discipling, I think about the training process, or, or the blacksmith principle, I will call. The blacksmith, when he wanted to convey his trade to a, an apprentice, it was a hands-on approach. It wasn't just the verbal. He didn't just tell him what to do. He stood there beside him. And sometimes it was hands-on, reminding him over and over and over again of how to maybe bend that horseshoe correctly, how to forge that metal correctly. He stood over him. He communicated the truth until he got it. I spent several years in the plumbing trade and often teaching an apprentice how to, how to run a pipe cutter, even something so simple as a pipe cutter. I might do it with my eyes closed, and many of you can too, but a, a, a young boy who's never run a pipe cutter is all thumbs. I mean, it just doesn't, it comes off, it doesn't, it doesn't work right, or it threads instead of cuts. And, but that's where it's, it's the teaching, it's the hands-on, it's telling them how, it's communicating how it's to be done. If it's to be got, caught, it needs to be taught thinking about intentionally discipling. Again, we can't leave anything to chance. You know, you think about in, in our world, um, 
we need to teach things that are real world things that they have to deal with, of course, as they get older and age appropriately. But I just thought of things as discipling. Are we teaching our children, even your 10 and 12, your young children, are we teaching them how to handle their finances, how to have a devotional life? I know nine-year-old boys that are reading through the Bible daily, every day, and I trust yours are too. Um, I've been taught to have that devotional life, studying the Bible. Do we teach them how to look for a mate as they're growing up and getting older? Do we teach them how to spot counterfeit truth? Are we teaching them self-denial? It's a principle in the Bible, but do we teach self-denial? Do we model self-denial? These are biblical truths that sometimes are just expected to be caught. I don't know that I ever taught my children self-denial. I probably didn't model it very well. But it's a biblical principle. Biblical principles both have to be taught verbally and modeled externally in order for a child to understand and to learn to apply them. So much of discipleship, as I alluded to before, it just happens in everyday life. Everyday life, everyday opportunities. Think about multi-generational discipleship and, and what God intends for us as fathers. How, how far out is your vision? You know, I was thinking when I was parenting, my, I was just thinking if I could just get through this stage of parenting, just get on the other side of it. I mean, especially when it was difficult and tough. And, but I wasn't looking at the next generation so much. And now I realize that as I was parenting my children, I was parenting my grandchildren. I think this is a very important truth for you parents to this concept to keep in your mind. As you're parenting your children, you are parenting your grandchildren. Your grandchildren are going to be parented, obviously, by your children. And you're establishing many of their values and principles that they're going to be living by. I'll just read quickly Psalm 78, a few verses there. In verse 3, he speaks about handing that faith down to three generations. He, verse 3 says, which we have heard and known. He's speaking about the word of God, uh, the faithfulness of God, which our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. He hath established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the generation which should be born, who should arise and declare them to, that, to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. You can see at least three generations there of passing on the baton to generation after generation. That's a long-term vision. And I trust that as you leave here today that you can leave with that long-term three, four-generational vision. Think about what we allow them to pursue, how close we allow them to live to the world, how we teach them God's Word, how we live as an example. All this is laying the foundation for succeeding generations.
You know, when our children were young, I mentioned this maybe briefly earlier, I didn't realize the significance of little choices. I thought a lot of these things were my own preferences and, nah, you know, maybe nobody will know. Maybe some inconsistencies in, in, in maybe what the church even said. And, and while you know, I think we can be legalistic there, that's another ditch. But your children still view you, maybe your inconsistency and maybe your disrespect for authority. And then they begin to form their own opinions. And so we shouldn't be too surprised when they get older and don't have respect for authority if we didn't as parents. I look back on that and, and some with regret. Remember, what you choose in moderation, the next generation can easily take to, to excess. That happens so easily and so quickly. And the results then won't be seen until future generations. <clears throat> Let's go on to the next point. The next point is parenting must be done in sincerity. Where, what I'm talking about here is we must avoid the slippery slope of compromise. The slippery slope of compromise, it is so easy to fall into it. All you have to do is do nothing. And you fall into this slippery slope of compromise. And when I thought about this, I thought about Solomon. And we all know his story. You read the book, you read there in, in Kings and Samuel, and you read the account of Solomon, and he begins as a very godly young man, and you think, what potential this man had. I mean, he had a dream, and, and God promised to give him all the wisdom and all the wealth and everything a king could want. Potential. But there were three loves that led to Solomon's demise. And I think these three get close to us. And let's pay attention closely to what they are. Number one was the love of extravagance. The love of extravagance. This correlates with the lust of the eye. Very early in Solomon's life, he began to accumulate wealth. He multiplied wealth at the rate of 25 tons of gold per year. That's an amazing amount of gold. 25 tons of gold in, in U.S. money today would be over $40 billion a year. Solomon is by far the richest man that has ever lived. When you look at all that he had at his disposal, he far surpasses anybody who lives today. $40 billion of silver a year. The stones, the, the, it says the silver was as common as stones, on the streets of Jerusalem, his luxurious lifestyle, accumulation of possessions, slowly pulled his heart away from God, didn't it? Very slowly pulled his heart away from God and toward his earthly treasure. And he possessed everything that a man could want except one thing. What was it? One thing. What one thing did Solomon not have? Anybody want to guess? Contentment. contentment. Thank you. Contentment. He had everything, but he didn't have contentment, which really left him with nothing of lasting value. 
So the love of extravagance. The second one is the, sensual, is the love of sensual experience. The love of sensual experience, the lust of the flesh. He had this unquenchable love for pleasure and experience that he attempted to gratify his sensual appetites to fill the emptiness that he had inside. This led him to accumulate a thousand women in his harem for his sensual pleasure. He sought it all, wine, women, song, agriculture, architecture, abundance of servants, not because he needed it, but to try to gratify his sensual desires. This is the entire realm of pleasure, entertainment, amusement, and comfort. Now I ask us, how close do these things get to us today? I think they're all within our grasp if we allow them. Many of them I've struggled with myself. The third one was a love of idolatry. Love of idolatry, which correlates with the pride of life. The Bible says here in 1 Kings 11, 4, it says, It came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth and the goddess of the Zeodians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. So we see Solomon grasping after idols. And what were these idols promising? Why were idols so prominent? They promised several things. Some of the things they promised was maybe correlated to the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eye in, in abundance as they worship Baal. Maybe they were promised by Baal good crops. But some of the other things that these idols promised, especially the worship of the sex gods, uh, the gods of Ashtaroth and the god, and, uh, the god of Milcom, there, those gods offered them pride. It offered them prestige as they would offer their children up to those, to those gods we heard about the other day and threw their children up into the arms of that burning flame. They were respected men. They were powerful men. For a man to offer his child to a sacrifice, that got him prestige and that got him power. Got him acceptance. Same things that people desire still today. Solomon found out that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, it can't meet the needs of a man. It only leaves a void inside that he longs to have filled by something that is lasting. In his final analysis of his fleshly pursuit, here's what he said. He said that this, this pursuit of pleasure was simply like chasing the wind. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity was his conclusion. This extravagant cost of Solomon's misplaced loves was the loss of his family. That's a sad commentary. The man had it all, but nothing. 
just lost his family. I think Solomon's compromise happened so slowly. And it's that way with me. It's probably that way with you. Compromise is incremental. It's like the thermostat or the thermometer. It doesn't change 10 degrees at once. It changed one degree at a time. And that's the way compromise always works. Just a little at a time. Satan doesn't ask you to make this big jump. You'll never do it. He'll ask you and me to take this little step, just a little step, just a little step at a time. And you know, people oftentimes, they look back maybe 10 years and they don't realize how far they've came away from God. Compromise may not come to us just the same way it did to Solomon. Today it might come with the diluted doctrine, perhaps, of minimum or minimal Christianity. I think there's a real danger for compromise for us. Minimum or minimal Christianity, like you really don't need to do anything. It's all done. There's no need for a sanctified, holy life. It's the crossless gospel. Requires no service, no sacrifice, no submission or suffering. This is the gospel that is being proclaimed today in America. A crossless gospel. And it is inviting. All it does, it requires people to do the same thing the devils do. Just believe. This calls us to ask ourselves, what kind of Christians am I raising? Am I satisfied as you look at the lukewarm Christian culture that's around us? Are we satisfied with that? Just think of it, dear ones, as you think about your children and you look at the lukewarm society and you look at at how deceptive things are today. Are we satisfied? Is our goal to raise spiritual giants? I hope as we leave this weekend that we can go home with a renewed vigor and commitments that we're going to raise spiritual giants, men and women that are Goliaths. What happened in the 50 years after Joshua died? <clears throat> it says in the children, verse, Judges 2, verse 11, said the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? They traded gods. They were still religious. Oh, they were religious people, but they traded gods. They went from the God of creation, the God who delivered them, to Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed after other gods, the gods of the people that were around them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And this is in our time. It's not just back there. The opportunity to serve Balaam is today. It's all around us. Still religious, just change gods. 
the Baal God was simply the God of materialism, which many professing Christians bow down regularly to today. A.W. Tozer said in the late 50s, he said, Christianity today is so entangled with this present world that millions never guess how radically they have missed the New Testament pattern 72 years ago. He made that observation. Let's move on. The necessity of godly convictions. How could Solomon have avoided this idolatrous life? How could he have avoided slipping into this compromise? You see, without deep convictions, Solomon developed divided passions. He had a divided heart. And Jesus made it very clear, we can't serve two masters. We have to draw the line and decide who we will serve. Lots of options. God, money, God, pleasure, God, ambition, God, self or pride. It won't work. And unfortunately, Solomon found out too late. But what if Solomon had godly convictions. Think about what Solomon could have been. What could have he had done? What if he had had godly convictions? What if he remembered the scripture in the Bible in Deuteronomy 17 that warned him about kings having foreign wives and he would have said, oh no, I can't do that. The Bible says not to take foreign wives. I won't do that. I've got a conviction against that. What if he had had read there about um, intermarrying with a heathen? Kind of goes with the foreign wives, I guess. But what about if he had read about kings not multiplying gold and taking that seriously? No, my kingdom is too precious. It's too value to worry about multiplying gold. What if he had taken it serious about the accumulation of wealth that the Bible warned him about? What about multiplying horses? How many horses did you have? Forty-some thousand horses? It seems like Solomon just, he thought that the Bible applied to somebody else, but not him. So conviction, what are they? Do you have convictions? Have you identified them? I hope that you have. And, and as, you, as you leave here today, that your convictions will be grounded in the Word of God. But what are they? What are they based on? How will they develop? You know, today, the lines are so gray. I know there's a lot of black and white now. We see that in, in the, especially in morality issues. But there's still a lot of fuzziness, a lot of gray, a lot of murky water out there that it's pretty difficult to see through. And this is why it's so important that we have godly convictions. I think of an example of a man who had convictions, and his name was Jonadab. And if you remember with me, his story is told in in Jeremiah 35, and I won't have time to go through the story in much detail. But but God told Jeremiah, call in the Rechabites. And he called the man, sat him down, and he says, you put wine before them and drink wine. And no, they said, we won't do that. Our, Our father forbade us to do that. Now, there's a lesson there. What was the lesson? Was it abstinence? Or was it idolatry? And, and what it really amounted to was Jonadab 
saw the confusion of Jehu, and Jonadab didn't want anything to do with that. And so he decided a nomadic lifestyle would be for his family. That's why he had the, the, the family rules of not building homes and not planting vineyards and not drinking wine. So they'd be nomadic. So it wasn't about abstinence. It was about idolatry. He believed there was only one true God as he watched his neighbors bowing down to the gods of the land. His conviction against idolatry caused him to make specific choices, definite choices that would ensure his children kept on the move as nomads and wouldn't settle down and worship the gods of the land. I want to challenge us there. Jonadab made these convictions, definite choices that would bless his family. I want to encourage you, dear, dear ones, Make definite choices. Draw your lines. Where are they going to be? We have, it's all wide open. I mean, look at the whole entertainment options that are out there for you. Draw your lines. Or your children will draw them for you. <clears throat> How long did Jonadab, did his convictions last? Probably somebody knows. How long did they last, at least? from, from uh, the story there in Kings, when Jonadab made this rule for his family to Jeremiah. How many years was it? Guess, anybody? Was it, it was 250. 250 years. But the thing is, is, is Jonadab's posterity is still alive. The, read the last chap chapter of Jeremiah 35. It says they've still got posterity. There wouldn't, there wouldn't lack a man to stand before the Lord. There's Rechabites somewhere. I don't know where they are. They probably know. I bet they do. So what I'm saying is without being intentional, we have a natural course we will follow. It's like water. Where does water go? Put a little water out here in the, on the porch or put a little water out here in the hill. Where will it go? It's going to go to the lowest part of the valley. Water always gravitates down. It always goes down. And our nature is the same. It always goes down without correction, without God's grace and His help, His power. We naturally will drift down. <clears throat> Again, look at Solomon. He had a natural appetite. You know, sin is the filling of natural appetites in the wrong way. All sin is the filling of natural appetites, maybe in the wrong way. I don't know if the word all is right. Maybe it's something I'm not thinking of. But at least almost all sin. I better put it that way. It's, it's natural things gone bad. I mean, just take about gluttony. For an example, something I think I've confessed and been guilty of while I've been here. The food has been delicious. But that's one, it's a natural appetite, but it's gone bad. It's, it's gone to excess, and you can go through all of them like that. I could briefly mention um, the fact that unless there's personal boundaries in our lives, and we have our foundation rooted in something deep, we will follow the world and compromise every time. Again, the natural flow of gravity is down. 
I could mention Lot briefly. Lot is another man that compromised. Like we've heard, Lot lost lots, but just a little at a time. He didn't move from, from where he was with Uncle Abraham right down into the city gates all one day. No, it was a step at a time, just a, just a little tick of the thermometer, just a little bit at a time. He was attracted towards Sodom when he saw its well-watered fields, his eyes. Then he acted, he pitched his tent towards Sodom and just getting a little toward Sodom, got a little closer. Then he adapted. He began to live in Sodom. And finally he acculturated as he's sitting there at the gate of Sodom. He's one of them. He's one of the leaders. Step at a time. Here's the challenge of the 21st century American Christianity that we face today, I think, for all of us. When Sunday is about God, but Monday to Saturday is about me, I may tend to invest all my time and energy and resources on business, possessions, status, and pleasure and entertainment while giving little or no time to studying the Bible with my family. Now that may not be you. I'm not saying that it is. But that's the culture around us. And what's in the culture around us can so easily creep into us and creep into our lives. And that's maybe one of the reasons why people are so turned off to Christianity. Your neighbors and friends, you tell them you're a Christian. I've heard that before. They know. They know that people that are Christians are oftentimes Sunday Christians, but the rest of the week, they live for the fulfillment of all their pleasures. Maybe not going into the, the, the gutters and into the drinking, into the sin and the immorality. But you see, we have to live a life style that is different the rest of the week if we're going to proclaim that we're following Jesus. Number four, let's just move on about leaving a legacy. What, is it, what mean ye these stones? I want to ask you a question. What monument will be left after you're gone? Will there be anything that I leave that my grandchildren will inquire about? What monument will you leave behind you? Think for a moment, what will your children and grandchildren look like? I realize that it's not all about what they're going to visually look like. But sometimes that's a picture. What's on the outside, sometimes a picture of what's on the inside. Leaving a legacy, is there anything more daunting and challenging to to think about that? What is a legacy? Legacy comes from the word lego. It means to send. We're leaving a legacy. We're sending something beyond us. Like the arrow we're shooting and flinging, it goes far beyond us into a world that we cannot see. Our children are messengers We sin to a time we cannot see. What kind of legacy will I leave behind me? What will be the primary interest and focus of my children or grandchildren? I'm modeling that for them now. What mean ye these stones? Let's think about that again. What mean ye these stones? You know, do we need to wait for our children to ask the question, what mean ye these stones? Do we need to wait? I don't think we need to wait. I think we need to be ready. Maybe we need to whet their appetite. I want to think just briefly about nonconformity to the world. 
And nonconformity, it has two very important aspects. As you read in Romans 12, 1 and 2, one of them is external, but the other one's internal. He says, don't be conformed to this world. No, don't let it squeeze you into its mold. So that certainly conform speaks of, of an external. Don't let the world squeeze you into its external mold, but be, be renewed by the spirit of your minds. The other one is internal. So let's think about the external a minute, teaching our children why we are different. Do your children ask, why do we dress this way? Why don't we just dress like everybody else? Do your children ask that? I hope they do. Or maybe you've already told them. Um, why don't we go to certain places? Daddy, why don't we go there? Why don't we go to, the, to Silverwood and, and engage in all that it has to offer in the way of, of roller coasters or whatever, the theme park, whatever it is? Why don't we go there, Daddy? We need to explain to our children before they have this opportunity to what, why we do what we do, why we don't do what we do or don't do. What about our veiling? Why, do, why don't other Christians wear a veiling? Do we explain to our daughters and our children why we do? Um, we, I think we can give answers without being judgmental of other people. We can firmly communicate what the Bible teaches internal. Another area that's so easily to overlook about nonconformity, kind of the scourge of the Western church, it's idolatry, like we've already talked about. Um, idolatry is just filling ourselves up with things that attempt to satisfy, things to replace God, just like Solomon. <clears throat> I'll just say this, that in, in my home, and I don't know, Josh might remember, but I don't know that we ever really talked a whole lot about idolatry in our home and what it was and what it looked like. Please don't make that mistake that I made. Talk to your children about idolatry. It's real. It's among us. It's in us. It's in our, it's in our churches. It's in our families. It's in our world. It's so close to us. Make sure they understand what it looks like. It's a replacement for God. So just brief summary, make sure discipling your children is a priority, not something that's left to chance. Make sure it's a priority. I want to encourage you, make a list of essential teachings and lessons that you want to make sure they got. Make a list, essential teaching and lessons and warnings and Bible truths that they need to know and teach them formally and informally to make sure nothing's left to chance. Teach clearly the way of salvation through an obedient love relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just believe. It's an obedient love relationship with Jesus Christ. Make sure that they understand that. The world, Christianity around us, teaches something different. Keep the family altar burning in their, living, in their living room like we heard last night. Keep that fire. If it goes out a little bit, rekindle it. Pour more wood on it. 
That was point number one. Make sure discipling your children is priority. Number two, if idolatry is the thing that brought a wise man like Solomon down and a nation like Israel, it can surely happen to us. It's not beyond us. It can surely happen to us. It's the scourge of the 21st century. Again, it's alive and well. Here, I want to give you some encouragement. These are practical things. I hope you can take them with you. Do a personal study of what idolatry is and what it looks like in today's world. A personal study. What is idolatry? What does it look like in today's world? We need to identify it for our children so they can spot it. So it's clear. It's easy to see. Put blaze orange on it. So it's, it's visible. Our posterity's and eternal future, future of your legacy, depends on it. Along with that, is my lifestyle demonstrating I'm a pilgrim and stranger? Again, give that some thought. Please take, that, take some of these things home and meditate on them. Am I living the pilgrim-stranger mentality? A lot could be said on that. I won't go there. Just ask the question. Is the busyness of life, keep asking this question, is the busyness of life, is the lifestyle I'm trying to maintain, is it really necessary in the light of eternity? I want you to be thinking 10,000, 10 billion years in the future. Is the lifestyle that I'm living now and, and, and what I'm communicating is important to my children, is it got any value 10 million years from now? Number three, about done, develop deep biblical convictions. Develop deep biblical convictions, things I won't compromise on. Here's the line. We've decided. It's part of your vision. Here's the line. This is what we'll do. This is what we won't do. This is our family. Develop them. Make sure they're clear. If Solomon had done that, oh, it would have saved him from such heartache, maybe Liberties that you won't do or will do for the sake of your family's spiritual well-being. <clears throat> again, I wish I could live life again. I can't. I can share with you. Last one. Have a vision for your legacy that you will leave behind you. Who or what will your grandchildren worship 30 years from now? Think about that question. Who will your grandchildren, or what will they worship 30 years from now? Remember, you're the model. Yesterday, I left you a handout with some questions that you can take home and you can ponder with your family. And you could take those questions and, and formulate them into a little family mission. A little family mission, and that can, can be kind of your guiding light. It's going, to go, it's going to point back to the Word of God. I know it will. It has to. But that can be your guiding light for your family and for your future. It's a tool. I hope that you can make use of it. William Booth. William Booth was the founder of Salvation Army. And he went to visit King Edward VII one time. As he signed into the, to the guest book into the palace, here's what he wrote. Your majesty, some men's ambition is art. 
Some men's ambition is fame. Some men's ambition is gold. My ambition is the souls of men. What a bold man he was. I want to ask us the question, what's your greatest ambition? Is it fame? Is it gold? Is it pleasure? Or is it the eternal welfares of your children? I know the answer, dear ones. It's the souls of your children. I believe that. Let's live that. Let's make that commitment that we are going to be fully committed, fully to Jesus Christ, and we're going to proclaim the Lord not only with our mouth, but with our lives until Jesus comes again. May God bless you. It's been a blessing to be here, to share with you. You've been an encouragement to me, and I feel like probably sometimes a message like this is preaching to the cream of the crop. But God bless you. May we all press on and be faithful.